Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. Thanks for joining us for our study of 1 Corinthians. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to be with you. Please take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. We're taking a little detour from 1 Corinthians today. And please go to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be beginning in verses 11, and we'll read all the way down to verse 23. And as we read these words, it's a great reminder yet again that these words come to us today, not in any authority other than the authority than King Jesus himself. So let's stand together in honor of Christ, in honor of the reading of his word, because we read these words as though he is right in our presence, and we, we will begin in verse 11. Hey, Nat, I, I forgot my little clicker there. I'm going to need that later. Thanks, Ben. And the Spirit says, beginning in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Holy Father, now, would you by your mighty hand and the power of the risen Christ and his spirit, would you strengthen us now? Would you help us to see Jesus for all that he is, Some of us today, Lord, we need to be confronted by the magnificence of Christ. Some of us need to be comforted by his glory. Some of us need to be corrected and awakened yet again. And Lord, some of us, you know, in this room, need to meet Jesus for the first time. And would you do that by your spirit and do only what you can do? Would you draw and call someone unto yourself today? 
And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, I, I, was, I was sent an article in reading about a costly and nearly tragic and nearly catastrophic event that, was, that could have occurred. An Air Force uh, recon mission is about to begin, and an RC-135V plane, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. I don't need to go into great detail about that, I'm sure. This plane electronically snoops on adversaries and enemies, and it relays all this gathered intelligence back to commanders, to Air Force commanders. And so this plane is about to take off, um, and 27 crew members are on board, and the plane is, is going down the runway, and as the plane gets to about 51 miles per hour, a fire breaks out in the plane. Um, very scary, obviously. A fire begins to consume this plane. They stop. The pilot cancels the takeoff. They they stop. Everyone gets out of the plane. And thankfully, by God's grace, everyone survived. No, no one was injured. Um, and this could have been a catastrophe. If this fire would have happened in the air, uh, they were able to stop the plane, get out. I mean, good grief. It would have been horrible. And so investigators come in and they're saying, what went wrong? What, what occurred? What caused this to happen? And they're beginning to look all around the plane and then they find the problem. This whole thing was caused by one bolt. One bolt wasn't tightened enough. The bolt that connects one tube to another tube that is transmitting oxygen wasn't tightened enough. And so oxygen is just leaking quickly out of this tube into this plane, creating a highly flammable, oxygen-rich environment. One minor detail, something that maybe costs, if it's a normal bolt, I don't know, pennies, endangered 27 members of the Air Force, one bolt, and cost and damages $62.4 million, one bolt. One oversight, creating massive danger. Guys, one of the greatest dangers in our lives is overlooking, minimizing, and downplaying, and forgetting Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss out on enjoying and being thrilled by the ultra awesomeness of Jesus. And this is, I think, one of the greatest dangers for Christians and especially in the Bible Belt. I don't want you to miss out on worshiping Jesus and, and being amazed by Jesus for who he really is. And maybe today you've drifted and you're going through the motions. This passage is a call for you to come back and see Jesus in all of his megaton glory for who he really is. Church and life and everything can become about a lot of things. We have hobbies and schools now back and work and you've got life and hobbies, time, all of these things. But listen, all of it must be centered on who Jesus is. Everyone in this room right now will exist 20 billion years from now. Every single one of us will exist for 10 billion years, longer and more and more. And the quality of your eternity hinges on how you view and relate to Jesus Christ. And it's striking how long we can live the Christian life and really not care or be focused 
on Jesus. And I know this firsthand from firsthand personal experience. For years, I loved doctrine. I loved to think about the scriptures, and I still do. But then I merely appreciated Jesus. I loved worship music. I was singing it all the time. Led worship in my youth group. But I was just kind of glad Jesus did his thing for me. I was committed to church. I was always there three times a week like a good Southern Baptist boy with an illuminated cross hanging in the background. But I didn't really care that much about Jesus. I read my Bible and study notes all the time. I even taught Bible studies. But I never really taught what the main story of the Bible is. Jesus Christ. I had Christian friends. We didn't confess sin because we knew that'd get awkward and weird. So instead, we just had spirited theological debates. I struggled with deep and hidden sin and covered it up because I was scared that if I really confessed, what would happen to me? I didn't have joy. There was plenty of shame and condemnation to go around. All this is because I was really living a Jesus-less Christianity, which is not an authentic expression of New Testament Christianity at all. And that is the kind of Christianity that we do not want to have at Redeemer Church. I have anyone to have. What we really and desperately need today is we need a vision of the original Jesus. Not shapeshifter Jesus that changes with every culture and every time. Not the Jesus kind of Plato, design Jesus yourself, the Jesus that you like, the, the Jesus, the parts that you enjoy that fits into your life. And honestly, in our flesh, we, we want Jesus to follow us. We don't want to follow him. We want Jesus to do what we want him to do. We want him to fulfill our demands and our requests. And what he's asking, that's too much. Many people, as Dan Darling writes in his book, The Original Jesus, will say things and they're comfortable with statements like this. Jesus, be our heroic and inspirational mascot. But enough of this kingdom talk. Jesus, be a pathway to God. Be a medium. Be a channel. But enough about you being the only way. Jesus, be a dish in our spiritual buffet. Join our club. But can you please cut out all the no one gets to the Father but by me talk? It's making the rest of us uncomfortable. Jesus, be our guru, be our buddy, be our friend, but we're not asking you to be our king. We must have the real deal, high-octane, full-strength Christianity, and this will only come by beholding his glorious might. Look at verse 11. This whole section from 11 to, I think, 21 to 20 is really, I think, a prayer for you and for me. Look at Paul's prayer. May you... Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He wants us to be strengthened, equipped by the glorious might of King Jesus. That is our greatest need right now this morning. You came in weak, which all of us did if we're honest. You just don't need information. You need to be strengthened by his glorious might. What do you get it? What do you get it for? Why? Look at what he says. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So you get endurance. You get patience. This all comes from beholding and being strengthened by his glorious might, joy, and thanksgiving. These are all overflows of being overwhelmed by our incomparable Jesus. So really, I think the first question we've got to ask ourselves this morning is, is Jesus glorious to you? 
is Jesus glorious to you? Because if he's not glorious to you, then you can't be strengthened by his glorious might. This is vital to your eternity. This is vital to your Christianity. This is vital to your joy right now. Jesus isn't a theory. He's not just words typed on a page. He is a person. The God-man, a dynamic, life-giving, universe-steering friend. Is Jesus glorious to you? And why? If he is, why? The Bible gives us plenty of reasons why Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious because he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. Jesus is glorious because for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus is glorious because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53. Jesus is glorious because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, Romans 6. We know that Jesus is glorious because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy. Jesus is glorious because this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy. Jesus is glorious because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we have been healed. Jesus is glorious because he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, Hebrews 9. Jesus is glorious because in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And Jesus is glorious because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Jesus is glorious. Jesus is flat out amazing. I want nothing more for you, nothing more for me, nothing more for our church. This is, this, I think this is the whole point of not just our church, I think every church in the Christian life, this is it. I want nothing more for us than to be, to see, to enjoy the woe factor of Jesus to see his woeness, and then live accordingly. This is the entire Christian experience. To be amazed by Jesus, to marvel at him, to see who he is and what he's done, and then live accordingly. And in Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul is giving us a ton of reasons to see his glory, 
to be strengthened by his glorious might. His glorious might is detailed throughout this passage. And this is about having a real vision of who Jesus is from Colossians 1. To not just acknowledge him doctrinally, but to experience Jesus. To be in awe of the man from Galilee. And six things for why we should be strengthened by his glorious might. That we should be in woe. That we'll go from woe is me to woe is Jesus. I think the first one is this. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. This is the headline over the entire passage. That he is the image of the invisible God. And then at verse 18, look at the last phrase in verse 18. So that in everything he might be preeminent. That word just means supreme. Top notch. No one higher. Paul's point in this passage is that we'll look back and say, Jesus is supreme. He's huge. And each verse in this passage is like a math equation that Paul just keeps adding up and adding up and stacking and stacking and stacking so that we are left to conclude the conclusion of verse 18 that he is preeminent, that he is supreme. This passage is meant to destroy any other thoughts of Jesus that we have that are not in accordance with Colossians 1. I mean, notice all the all phrases. Look at all these words that Paul repeats over and over. Verse 15. I mean, I circled all these in my Bible, and I think it would serve you to do that too. So they, they pop at you when you read this text. Verse 15, all creation. Verse 16, all things, all things. Says it twice. Verse 17, all things, all things. Two times again. Verse 18, everything. Verse 19, all the fullness of God. Verse 20, all things. Verse 23, all creation. I mean, do you see Paul's point? Jesus is over all things, and all things are for Jesus. He's supreme. We don't just worship a, a guy from Galilee who said some really inspiring things, and so now we you know, try to do what he said in his word. That's not Christianity. We worship a Galilean and galactic emperor who reigns and rules over everything, and it's all his. If you aren't a Christian today, don't equate Jesus with other religions and leaders. He's not left you to do that. He doesn't allow you to do that. A lot of people say, I think Jesus is a good teacher. Hey, every Christian should agree with that. Yes, Jesus is a great teacher. So let's talk about some of the things Jesus taught. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham existed, I did. The whole Bible's written about me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but by me. You must lay down your life, and you must be crucified with me, and unless you eat my skin and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. So you think he's a good teacher? Jesus sets himself apart from everyone else in the universe because Jesus is God. And this sets him apart from everyone. He is the cosmic king. He is more important than Buddha. He is more important than Muhammad. He is more important than Joseph Smith and Taylor Swift. And Jimmy Fallon. And you and me, Jesus is the center of the universe. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He makes God known. You want to know what God is like, what the triune God is like? We look at Jesus and the scriptures and we see it. Undiluted. 
And this phrase, firstborn, the firstborn of all creation, this is not a phrase to get hung up on like a lot of cults do. This is where a lot of cults find their demise right here from this word. Oh, he must have been created. He's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus wasn't created like Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Look at the next phrase in verse 16. For by him all things were created. So I don't know how you are a created thing and then by you all things are created. Unless you're some kind of self-creating amoeba, I have no idea how this happens. But Jesus is the creator. He is outside of created things. This firstborn of all creation is a way to express Jesus' high rank as the son of God. That he's the firstborn, that he is the heir to all things. That the universe is his. This is the second thing. Jesus created and owns the universe. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things. I mean, the Bible's just not leaving you any margin here. All things were created through him, it's the agent of creation, and for him. They belong to him. Everything. Things we can see and things we can't see. I mean, NASA is spending millions and millions of dollars to help you worship Jesus. They're spending millions of dollars to explore our universe, his universe, so that you can sit back and go, man, Jesus made that. Thank you, NASA. Because our church doesn't have that kind of budget. Jesus made them all. And Paul goes into this phrase. Look at this. This is a weird phrase, but you can, you can grasp it. It's, it's, once you know it, you're like, oh, okay. Thrones or dominions, what are these things? Rulers or authorities? This is a common phrase in the Bible to talk about the spiritual realm, the angelic realm, the satanic realm. These phrases typically speak of demonic powers. Jesus made them as angels. They fell into sin and rebellion and became demons. So why does Paul bring this up? He's bringing this up to remind the Colossians who are struggling with, is the spiritual realm, should we fear that, or, or the physical realm, which one's bad, which one's good? I, I, I'm not sure. They're, they're confused. He reminds them, no, Jesus created the spiritual realm too. So why is this vital? Satan is not equal with Jesus, like Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Satan was created by Jesus as an angel. He fell into rebellion, and he will answer to Jesus. The Lord of your soul, in a way, is also the Lord over the satanic forces, and they will answer to Jesus. This is why demons shudder at him in the Gospels. They don't try to go toe-to-toe with Jesus. They back away and say, are you here to destroy us today? We don't live in a dualistic universe where there's good and bad, God and Satan, and they're both duking it out, and whoever's the best wins the day. No way. Jesus is the creator. Satan is creation. And then remember, Satan does not rule hell. Satan is not the one executing wrath on people in hell. God is. Jesus owns hell. And he will throw Satan into the lake of fire, where he too will be punished for all of eternity. And this next phrase as much as that floors me, this floors me. The last phrase of 16, all things were created through him and for him. 
Let those four words rest on your heart and mind. All things for him. All of it. Jupiter exists for Jesus. Whatever Pluto is right now belongs to Jesus. He made it for himself. Clownfish like Nemo, ice cream, India, volcanoes, moon rocks. I mean, whatever. It's all his. And he made it for his enjoyment. No other religion in the world teaches this, that their leader made it all, and he says he made it all for himself. There is not a single molecule in the universe where Jesus goes, "Mm, I'm not sure if that belongs to me or not. Is that someone else's? No, it's all his. You. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you were created for him. And the purpose of your life is to make much of him. And Paul adds another coal to the furnace. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, so he ranks before all of these things, and in him all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create and own the universe, now Jesus sustains the universe. All things are being held together by him. Jesus did not create the universe and then step away and then see how it's going to play out. No, he creates and he sustains. He is involved with everything in the universe. Even the little dust particles that are dancing around in this room are doing it by the sheer providence and majesty of King Jesus himself. Even your Bible. My Bible's sewn together and it's got some glue, and so it's easy to look at books and go, okay, the glue, the fabric, that's what's holding this Bible together. The glue's just working. Glue never just works. Nothing ever just does its thing. When we look at things and think, well, it's just doing its thing because that's what it's supposed to do. That's practical atheism. Everything does its thing because Jesus is doing his thing. Jesus holds Neptune together. And he knows you. The same God that is in control of where Halley's Comet is headed and when it'll pass by again is the same God who said, Apostles, stop. Let the children come to me. And let them sit on his lap. The same God who spoke the universe into existence is the same God who knows you and loves you. This is why Jesus is amazing to me. And look at verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. So we go from this cosmic, mega Jesus to church. The local church is of cosmic significance. He bought the church with his bloody death on the cross. He took our sins and he he paid for them. He created the church himself and he made us right before God. He makes us acceptable to God. And then maybe you need that today. And if you repent, you turn and look to him and believe he'll He'll bring you into the church. And Jesus dies for people, but if you stay dead, who cares? You lose. This is why the next verse matters. Jesus is alive. 
that he's the firstborn, verse 18, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning of what? What does this mean, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? That he's the first one to die, to rise, to never die again. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus died again. Jesus is the first one who dies, rises, never dies again. He's been kicking for 2,000 years now and doing great. This is Jesus. And so this whole firstborn from the dead, he's showing us he is alive and well. Because there's been a body missing in Jerusalem for over 2,000 years now, great joy should spring up in our hearts. Great excitement and great wonder and great bewilderment for who Jesus is and what he's done. If, I don't know of any other religious leader or any other religion that claims their leader is still alive. That he's been alive for 2,000 years in a resurrected human body. No one else teaches this. The first one to die and rise again, showing us what's headed our way. He was the first one. And we're all going to be the second ones if we're in Christ. As Johnny Cash sings, when I hear that trumpet sound, there ain't no grave that can hold my body down. Jesus rose from the dead, killing death, showing what would become of us at his second coming, giving us new life. This is ample evidence to worship Jesus. I don't know anyone else who's been alive for 2,000 years. And if you do, talk to me after the service. Why does this matter? Because Jesus is fully God. Look at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God is in Jesus. Some believe that Jesus was just a man going about his business, and then God possessed him, God kind of zapped him, and whoa, now he's divine. That's not the real Jesus. Jesus has eternally existed as the Son, became a man born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect, sinless life, died for us, rose again from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, soon to return. Paul says that in Jesus' time on the earth, he was fully God, and he's fully God today. That there was not a micron of divinity that did not get included with Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He isn't diet God. He isn't baby God. He's not JV God. Fully God. Co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And you add all these things up from 15 through 19, and then Paul's conclusion is that he's supreme. So you don't just worship, don't just settle for these kind of lucky rabbit foot thoughts of God. That Jesus is just some kind of talisman that you can just call on in the time of trouble. We should have skyscraping and heart-igniting, sustainable thoughts and worship of Jesus in all of life. Because the last reason that Jesus is amazing, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So creation's going to be made new. When that cross got slammed into Jerusalem soil and blood flowed mingled down, the entire earth was being purchased to be made new. 
And people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue were also being purchased to make all things new. The cross is the central plan of God, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is why for every church and why for Christians, the the cross stands at the center. The cross is our logo. And what do we get from it? Verse 12. Now look back at verse 12. We're going to give thanks to the Father. Well, why? Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from Satan, and transferred us to the kingdom. See, we were just in a domain of darkness, but no, no. Now we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Man, we could spend all morning, we could spend weeks just enjoying that one truth that we have forgiveness of sins with Christ, that everything you've done, everything you will do has all been forgiven by Jesus if you believe in him. We could spend two years of sermon series just enjoying those words, forgiveness of sins. And I think that's, that's what we're going to be doing in eternity. We will be experiencing what forgiveness of sins means. That we will live in a new earth without an ounce of sin. And it'll take eternity to realize that we have been forgiven of our sins. The cross is our logo. And now look at verse 21. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. In 21, and you. He's speaking right at us now. Remember this whole time, what, what has he been talking about? Him. He has delivered us. He's the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created. He's the head of the church. Through him, to reconcile. And then now Paul turns and says, and you. You, look at what he says, you once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now remember, he's speaking to Christians. So as a Christian, you need to catch the tense of that sentence. And you who once were. You were alienated from God, but not anymore because of Jesus. You were hostile in mind to God, but no more because of Jesus. You were doing evil deeds. We all know that, but we're not committed to that anymore because of Jesus. And you must pay attention to this verse because if you're not in Christ, then this verse is speaking not about past tense, but your present tense. If you're not in Jesus, then you are alienated from God. You are hostile in mind to God. You are doing evil deeds. But Jesus, he is offering you peace by the blood of his cross. He's not inviting you to do a bunch of hoops and to do a bunch of stuff to try to get right with God. No, Jesus is saying, I have done everything that needs to be done for you to be right with God. If you will receive the terms I'm offering, wave your white flag, Give up on yourself and then come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We worship Jesus for what he's done. We were these things, but no longer. We worship Jesus for who he is. He's given us a new identity. In Christ, you're not these words anymore. 
Now, look at what you are, verse 22. Here's your gospel identity in verse 22. And now, so 21 was all words, 22, now. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, current, real, tangible, experiential. Today, you've been reconciled to God because of Christ. Never to be alienated again. Reconciled you. You've been reconciled by the death of Christ, by his works, by him dying in your place for your sins. And now everything's reconciled. Now you and the triune God are totally at peace with each other because we are no longer our sins. We are now Christ's. We belong to him. And Jesus makes us new. And for now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because who do we belong to? Him. Because 21 says to reconcile to himself. We're reconciled to him relationally. And he's saying, now I'm bringing you in. We're justified, declared righteous, but now we're also adopted. I'm bringing you in. He turns his enemies into his children. Into co-heirs with Christ. Your past is cleared, and your present is grace-filled, and your future is incredibly bright because of Jesus. Your past is cleared, your present is grace-filled, and now your future is incredibly bright. Do you see your future? 22, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This is where every Christian's headed. To present you holy and blameless, above reproach, Jesus is changing us, washing us in the water of the word. He promises to. He's changing us to look more like him, to be conformed to his image. And do you see where you're headed? To present it and above reproach before him. You are going to be presented to Jesus, by Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. Your future is him. He's bringing us into his presence. Heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. And we'll spend eternity with Jesus on the new earth. This is where we're headed, to see him face to face. And so you add up all these reasons. We're we're headed to his presence, and this is who he is, and this is what he's done, that he died in my place. He's reconciled me to God. All that's left to do is say, worship him. And it doesn't just mean Sunday morning. Worship is not just Sunday morning. Worship is an entire life of making much of Jesus. It's a response. It's a song, yes, but it's an entire life. We are bought with a price, so we glorify God in our bodies. We make it our aim to please Him, to honor Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9. And look what Paul says in verse 23, the last verse of, of the passage. If we remember where we're headed, to His presence... And now verse 23, if, if indeed you continue in the faith. If. That is a big word in this passage. It's only two letters, but it has massive significance. Do not rob if of its power here. Let that sit. You're headed to his presence. He's reconciled you. This is where you're going. If. If you continue in the faith, 
that word is kind of like the little bolt that we got to tighten down. If you don't, you might be in danger. That word if is destroying any kind of nonsense of, well, I say I believe in Jesus. I don't follow him. I never really do, and I never will, but I prayed a prayer once. Uh, you, if you continue in the faith, we must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Worshiping Jesus is continuing with Jesus. An ongoing worship, response, discipleship with Christ. This is big. It's especially in the Bible, a lot of people, oh, yeah, totally, I'm with Jesus. Oh, great, so you're committed to him, you love him, you follow him. No, I didn't, I've never thought about him again, but I did get baptized. That's not continuing in the faith. I believe, and our church does, once saved, always saved. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. What this verse is saying, that if you don't continue in the faith towards the end, then you were never really saved. Once saved, always saved, absolutely. But the Bible says nothing about once professed, always protected. Isaiah, the Lord says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can give Jesus lip service, but is your heart made new? Following him in faith, Picking up your cross daily and following him. Lots of people say they love Jesus, but it never shows. So what this verse is saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Don't shift. This is why verse 11 was so important to start with. May you be strengthened by his glorious might for endurance, for joy, thanksgiving. What's his glorious might? 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. By him, all things, all things reconciled you. So don't shift. But if you shift, if you don't stay stable and steadfast, if you leave the faith, you're in trouble. If you aren't a Christian, Jesus can save you. That's exactly what he came to do. When he first came to this world, he did not come to condemn you. He came to save you, that in order you might be saved through him, but you must know he will come again, and the second time he arrives, he will bring a reckoning on the earth. And Christian, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Instead, be strengthened by his glorious might. Don't forget that you are forgiven and freed totally and thoroughly, that by the work of Christ you're accepted before God, not by anything you do or don't do. That by belief in him, clinging to him, you live by grace, not by works. That Jesus is at work in you. So don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't start with Jesus, then abandon Jesus and try to do it all on your own. Don't try to live like Jesus without Jesus. Maybe you've shifted. Maybe you're sitting here today and thinking, I, I think I'm shifting from the hope of the gospel. I think I have shifted. There's really four Four areas from which you could drift from the hope of the gospel. First one would be license. I'm going to send it up and abuse God's grace. 
I know he'll forgive me. I know I'm forgiven, so I can do this. That's from Romans 6. Should, should I sin more because grace will abound? Paul says, no way. And there's a danger right here that I can feel. That I'm going to share it because I know there's a danger here, and Paul knows it too. He doesn't say, you don't do it because grace won't abound. He doesn't say that. He knows grace will abound. What he's showing is, no, that, that's, that's not the heart position of someone who's following Jesus, who wants to honor him, make much of him. Maybe you drifted into legalism. Try to justify yourself with man-made rules and, and works, finding your hope in self, not in Jesus. My goodness saves me too. I mean, I'm relying on Jesus, but I'm a really good person, and that's why I'm going to be safe too. I mean, I need Jesus, but I can, take, I can kind of take it from here, pass the baton, and I'll get through all this. The first one's unrighteousness, license. The second one is self-righteousness. I'm a really great Christian. This is why. Third one's lukewarm. And tragically, this might be the most common one among church-going Bible Belt people. You'll do the Christian thing, come to church more than Christmas, Easter. Come once, twice a month, read your Bible when you kind of stumble across it, kind of pray when things are going wrong. You're somewhat committed to Christ, but it's just enough to not change your life. Invited Jesus into the foyer of your life, but whoa, 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 don't, you can't come into the rest of the house. I, I can keep you here, but I got a lot of stuff back here that I just don't want you seeing, I don't want you speaking into. Third one is maybe, maybe you've left the faith, or you're leaving it now. You're about to walk away from Jesus, or you already have. I, I just don't believe anymore. Have you drifted to one of these areas? You've got to look up and examine your life. The unexamined life is not a thoroughly Christian life. Christian life. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 13, 15, maybe. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. His glorious might. So the answer, if you find yourself in one of these, is not to go, oh gosh, I better get together tomorrow. The answer is, I need your glorious might. I need to look at Jesus. Behold his glorious might and look at him until you see him. Look at him until you're in awe of him. Keep staring and looking and reading and thinking and saying, Lord, I want to be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so I can endure, so I can have patience, so I can have joy, and so I can give thanks to the Father who has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints. For you delivered me from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and I have redemption and forgiveness of sins with you. And I believe that in you all the fullness of God dwells. And I believe that all things were created through you and to you and for you. And I believe that you have reconciled me by your bloody cross to be with God. And I am going to endure to the end because of you, not because of me. You look at Jesus until you see him. Jesus, if you're not a Christian, Jesus will never turn someone away that wants him. Read the Gospels. That never happens. He has never turned anyone away that really wants him. Right now, practically, the only reason that you aren't with Jesus is because you don't want him. 
If you will look to him and believe, the Spirit is at work in your life, calling you unto Christ himself. No matter what situation you find yourself in, maybe you're a Christian, you've quit paying attention, and you've drifted. Look to him. Look to him. Worship him. Look to his glorious might. And then, church, we will be strengthened with all power to endure till the end. He stands living and breathing for you and for me. So will you worship him? We live all out for him. Don't overlook him. Don't minimize him. Don't hesitate with him. In doing so, there's great danger. Christ be praised. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to come forward. And as we transition to the Lord's Supper, maybe now you need to confess any sin, to examine yourself, to confess any license, any sins that you know you're just giving free reign in your life and because of God's grace that you you shouldn't be doing so. Any sins of legalism in your life where you think because of your morality, you're better than others, because of your morality, because of your goodness, Jesus loves you more. Any lukewarmness, just confessing, Lord, I'm not. I don't have joy like this passage says I should have. I haven't been joyful because of your glorious might. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm about to leave the faith. Maybe I have. You can come back. The prodigal's father stands at the road waiting. And he'll receive you with open arms and throw a big old party. Lord Jesus, would you do a mighty work among us according to your glorious might now? Would you strengthen us with all power and endurance that we may have joy and thanksgiving to our Father. Lord, would you help us to see your glory with unveiled face and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And we know that you can do this and only you can do this. So Lord, would you take Colossians 1 and sear it into our hearts, cutting through our thoughts and intentions, and reestablishing you as the center of our lives. And may we live accordingly. Help us, Lord. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.